On this special episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, recorded live during the Fall 2022 New York State Association meeting in Terrytown, New York, we interview some of the speakers at the conference and the leadership of the association. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. We would like to thank our sponsors, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers, Trivalence. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable data insights, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 171 of the ASC podcast with John Gailey for October 29th, 2022. Recorded live during the fall 2022 New York State Association of Ambulatory Surgery Centers conference in Terrytown, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Remember, the ASC regulatory environment is extremely dynamic, and the material provided in this episode is based on information available as of the date of the recording. Joining me is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. Mr. Gailey is the author of over 10 books on the ASC industry and a frequent industry speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. So we recorded uh, much of this material, or all of the, the actual interviews, during the fall 2022 New York State Association meeting in Terrytown. We had a lot of fun there. We actually had a huge presence mm-hmm. there in the trial care strategies. We had 12 of our employees there, which we can do because it's right down the throughway yes. in our state. But uh, we had a lot of fun, got to listen to and see a lot of our listeners, of course, of the podcast, mm-hmm. and got to meet new people and uh, and spread mm-hmm. the word about the, the podcast. But uh, it was a great conference, uh, highest attendance that we've had ever. And, of course, the New York State Association is growing, as you're going to hear as we talk to some of the speakers here. And, and so we were also very fortunate that, to get a lot of interviews. Not that you were mm-hmm. part of it, unfortunately. You were mm-hmm. busy uh, manning the booth and manning the, um, the, the registration desk mm-hmm. while we were there. But uh, I did have an opportunity to meet a lot, a lot of great people and get some very good, solid interviews from everybody. Mm-hmm. So let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll have each of those interviews from the conference. It's been a long day, and the surveyor has just left, and you are exhausted and looking at the list of items that you have to address. You wonder, how can I deal with this and still take care of my patients? More importantly, you wonder, how can I ever keep up with all of the regulations, standards, and accreditation requirements? How can I always be prepared for a survey and reduce my stress levels? Well, that's what Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies does, day in, day out. We become your outsourced regulatory and accreditation resource. 
We can maintain your policy manual, develop your education programs, help out with fire and disaster drills, do your risk assessments, oversee your quality improvement activities, help run your quality improvement meetings and governing body meetings, and we can even prepare your monthly or quarterly financial statements and help you figure out where you are financially. We are a retainer-based service. We don't take ownership. We don't charge based on your revenue. We have one fixed monthly fee, and we can tailor your services to your exact needs. So whether you're looking for help getting over a survey, preparing for a survey, or looking for a long-term relationship to assist you with your ongoing regulatory and or financial needs, please give us a call at 585-594-1167 or email us at info at ahstrategies.com. That is info at ah-strategies.com or visit our website at ah-strategies.com. Our first interview is with Amanda Penrod, Ph.D., CASC, CEO, and co-founder of RFX Solutions. So we have uh, gotten to know RFX Solutions in the last couple of months. Uh, They are uh, one of the premier uh, providers of various uh, uh, web-based services for the amateur surgery industry. And I had an opportunity to talk to to Amanda about the evolution of these type systems and where we might be heading in the industry. So let's listen to the interview. So I'm here at the September 2022 New York State Association meeting in Terrytown, and I'm here with Amanda Penrod, Dr. Uh, Amanda Penrod. I love saying that. You know, I, I have a lot of friends who are well, PhDs. Thank you, John. So <laughs> I, I say that in, not in a negative <laughs> yeah, way at all. Thank you. You are the chief executive officer of RFX, and mm-hmm. uh, our company has gotten to know uh, our uh, uh, ambulatory healthcare strategy has gotten to know you very well over the last couple hours here as our staff. We have 12 staff members mm-hmm. here, uh, and each of them, I think, is, is busy your, your, your booth, not just okay. because of your potato. Um, no, our, our, you know, our potatoes are a great conversation yeah, for people. Yeah, it, it does start. Yes, but, it does. But every one of our employees is walking <laughs> around with one right now. But you have a, a solution for the, the marketplace, which is uh, interesting, and it just generates this whole question. It's, it, it's a... The, the, the point that as we develop further as an industry, as a professional mm-hmm. organization, a, a professional a- ambulatory surgery centers, as we get more into, you know, quality reporting and being able to mm-hmm. uh, quickly provide information for surveyors or for the government, for that mm-hmm. matter, um, we, we have to find better ways of doing that. And for the longest time, you know, so much of what we do is on paper, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, for example, credentialing files. Mm-hmm. You know, they're all paper for the most part. Uh, you know, some solutions are out there. Chart audit tools, survey tools, uh, mm-hmm. those famous checklists that we all have. Right. And so I thought that we would start our conversation by just talking about the uh, where we are right now mm-hmm. and what we're finding our customers, maybe just even a little bit of a dialogue about what our customers are looking for. Yeah, you know, um, John, I appreciate the opportunity and to talk about it. And um, I think the potatoes kind of lend itself to a great opener for this. And um, so they're stress ball. Uh, right. And or stress we, potato, I they're guess. They're a stress <laughs> potato, yes. And, and really, it's our clients are buried. And so when yeah. we start talking about our administrators, our DONs, and our staff there, mm-hmm. um, they're not, it's, it's the paperwork. Yeah. It's the compliance, the regulatory. It's keeping up with credentialing. It's what's happening with my vendor contracts. Where are they at? Um, my staff records. When is that staff license mm-hmm. expiring? Um, when it comes to compliance and our compliance logs, did we actually complete them? But even more importantly, 
the next step to that is if they did and there was a compliance issue, yes. was management alerted? What aspects of patient safety are being impacted? Yeah. And so when we talk to our clients and they will just go to a provider credentialing as an example, what I hear so often is how buried they are and the want to make a difference in these other areas, but the inability because they don't have the capacity. Yeah. So our goal and our solution is for us as a, is to really take all those binders, those file folders, um, you know, all the, those, those documents, the logs that they have to mm-hmm. compile that together in a, in an automated digitized format, um, interacting with our staff, our vendors, um, interacting with our providers, um, through this, but also grabbing very valuable data, giving mm-hmm. oversight. So now I know where I stand in this. So now I can go focus on what other aspects are happening in quality today? What about the, you know, aspects of the OR that may need additional attention and taking the lift and the burden um, from them on the paperwork? And it's, it's significant. I, I actually have a story mm-hmm. that occurred today with yeah. one of our clients. We're 12 of us are here at the conference. We have 20 employees. Yeah. So we literally had a story today where one of our centers, we discovered about late last night, mm-hmm. um, their suction machine, one of the two sides. So the way a suction machine works yeah. is that you have two pumps, mm-hmm. um, you know, and one is always working and the other one is on standby. And then they switch back and forth. Yeah. Uh, but you always have to have a backup, just like a generator. You always mm-hmm. have to have backup power. Mm-hmm. Well, one of our staff went in yesterday and... And uh, discovered that the backup mm-hmm. suction machine was out of service. Yeah. And there was a disconnect mm-hmm. between the person who does that, does that yeah. inspection and said, oh, yeah, it's been down for a while. Mm-hmm. And the people that actually manage the um, ordering of the services mm-hmm. there. So I, as I'm listening to you, I'm saying right. there is a perfect example of, you know, your dashboard being able to, you Absolutely. know, highlight that as well as, you know, again, one of the, the, the mm-hmm. mistakes we hear was somebody didn't pull out the checklist Correct. to do that double check. So talk a little bit about, I mean, even a, a life example, so, a real life yeah, example. Um, no, I've had it myself. So prior to developing and starting RFX. Mm-hmm. I actually, 20 years experience um, in healthcare, um, running ASCs. I myself had similar experiences. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden I had a piece of equipment. We thought that there was preventive maintenance being done or service. It didn't. It goes down. And now not only am I having to service it, um, bring that piece of equipment up, um, the cost and the yeah. immediate cost outlay was tremendous and it shut our ORs down because of it. And, and so, by the way, that's what we had to do. Yeah. We had to tell them that they can't do any operations until they mm-hmm. start. So uh, again, exactly yeah. what you're just saying. I mean, and so it's, it's very costly. So not just in the cost outlay or outlay of, of what needs to happen to bring the equipment back up mm-hmm. and with that vendor, but I've shut my ORs down. I've got frustrated surgeons. I mean, I've got, now I've got staff patience, uh, it's a domino effect. Yeah. And so, but at the end of the day, it isn't these administrators or DONs, material managers, whoever's responsible, not wanting to do that. It's, it's a time and a capacity issue and they yeah. need better tools in front of them. That's alerting. I'm saying, you know, the next 30 and 60 days, these are all of your preventative maintenance or service contracts that you need to be mm-hmm. servicing and having a tool that automates that and helps track it for them and then maintains it. Right. And, uh, because in the absence of it, it's buried. Right. Um, so, I, I want to move on to one of the uh, more important. And again, I know we're focusing on your tool no. in particular, but this is a community. Uh, this is a, a, a industry-wide issue, and that comes down to credential files. 
Yes. Um, we, you know, we're, our organization, Amateur Ethical Strategies, doesn't do um, credentialing, but we oversee those files. And for the vast majority of our centers, they're still on paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe they, you know, have electronic versions of it. Uh, we've been toying with some of the online services that are out there. You know, some of our clients use CVOs, okay. uh, which, uh, interesting, as I'm talking to your staff at your booth, they were saying the same thing I do, kind of like secretly, like, we all hate CVOs. We yeah. really feel <laughs> that many surgery centers find their actually useless because they get you into more trouble. Mm-hmm. I was I was telling a story about as a surveyor, when I go out and survey an organization, if you tell me you have a survey or a uh, CVO, I immediately know what to look for mm-hmm. because the average CVO misses that. Right. So it's almost like you tell me you have a CVO, I automatically know right. exactly what's going to go wrong with it. But I think there is a huge role in the future mm-hmm. or, or now, not even in the future, uh, for computerizing this, but doing it in a relatively simple way, yeah. something that's really accessible. Talk I, a little bit about how you approach yeah. that. Well, yeah, talk, I, talk first about the problem it, and then yeah, how you solution. Let's talk it. about the problem because from an industry perspective, and this is coast-to-coast wide, and it's things that we are even seeing um, with our clients, but even in talking to people at conferences and so forth, the inability, first of all, to have visibility on what needs to happen. But second of all, the complexity of it, staying up with all the paperwork. It is, and as you know, that credentialing um, for many of them, I mean, depending on their bylaws, is either going to be a two or three year process. But in that time frame, we have multiple um, events that are occurring yeah. with licensure expiring. I mean, OIG checks, insurances, et cetera. And they miss these gaps and these opportunities. But it is very labor intensive. Mm -hmm. And just managing the paper is what makes it complex. A lot of the process is not actually that complex. It's just the number of events of expiration. And so giving individuals tools that can help them track that in a more meaningful way and that keeps that current Mm-hmm. allows credentialing to no longer be, as we've seen, a full-time job in high-volume centers to something that really could be you know, a fraction of that. And so then being able to repurpose instead of just handling provider um, credentialing file after credentialing file, and then at the end of the day, to your point, even working with some of the CBOs, and some of them do a good job, mm-hmm. we're also finding that the staff in the center when they're working with the CVOs, are still having to chase down, we need an updated DEA license. Yeah. We need an update uh, medical license from the practice. And so it's at those moments that it just continues to convolute and weigh down the actual, you know, just the needs of the center and what they're trying to do. And they're, they're chasing people in the process. And so it just, it, it lends itself to huge gaps. And one of the things I uh, will tell you with, with our clients um, I have yet, we have yet to onboard um, in, or, or even talk to any of them that are 100% compliant with credentialing. Yeah. In fact, the gaps are vast. And, uh, and that's in our experience. Actually, we were talking to your staff at the booth that uh, we as a company and the ASC podcast has had to step in recently mm-hmm. because of the huge knowledge gap that occurred after COVID, where a lot of credentialing coordinators had years of experience yeah. just said, you know, I don't want to go back to work after this. Right. Really didn't have anything to do necessarily with the the job it's just they decided you know mm-hmm. i'm kind of done yeah. you know with with everything going on and and that education and training the, the knowledge that they lost mm-hmm. from those people who've been doing it for so long mm-hmm. um and i think your tool so here's one of my pet peeves about this you know often when you're talking to, to the owners of surgery centers you know they look at all this paperwork is oh just get it done you know it's just right. the paperwork what as i'm listening to you i'm thinking to myself your products handle that background stuff 
so that the ultimate solution is what you call a dashboard. Mm -hmm. In other words, something rolls up and says, out of all that data that I've collected, this is your problem. Mm -hmm. And that's really the solution here because... It your is. data, your your product, and, and there's other competitors out there. Mm-hmm. Again, not to mention, but right. but the idea of using software to gather this information so that you don't have a thousand pieces of paper mm-hmm. that you could easily lose, right. that often could get overlooked because you check the box and forget to follow up with somebody. Mm-hmm. There's there's no cross check on that tr- that that check. When you yeah. checked it off, it didn't notify somebody else no. like your software does. Yeah. You know, John, um, as you're mentioning and talking about that. What we're finding right now, when we start looking at all contracts and agreements or staff records, provider credentialing, particularly for organizations who have been established for a while, and um, when we go to build them, it is anywhere from forty to 50,000 sheets of paper. Yeah. And when you think about the sheer just complexity in managing that, it's easy to miss stuff. Yeah. And, and some of that is very critical to how we operate and our patient safety and yeah. requirements for regulation and compliance. And so it's, it's helping them close, you know, that paper gap. I mean, yeah. not to mention, um, you know, we talked to some of them, even on logs, uh, as an example, they get frustrated if they have an infection and they're like, we need to do a tracing, but to go and even find, they're like, I think our boxes for, you know, this are in a storage, I don't know yeah. where, and the hours spent having to dig versus having that data very meaningfully available to them, so they can look at it and know, you know, this is these are the problems that we had or we didn't have, um, and quickly be able to extrapolate that out. But um, the dashboard is hugely beneficial to them. At any given time, an administrator knows this is where I'm at in my center, and um, mm-hmm. you know, and then likewise, if uh, we know there's a lot of turnover. And it's uh, um, and a lot of new administrators stepping into roles who need to right. learn. And it's like, how do we give them intuitive solutions? You know, the business uh, and these complex business problems, and put it in a more simplified manner, so that you know the individual who has a clinical background, and we know about 90 percent of our administrators are all clinical. Right. How do we help them drive these business in a more meaningful way? And um, and that's you know is important to us. Amanda, uh, mm-hmm. project into the future. If you can. Yeah. You got a doctorate. You should be able to do this. Yeah. Um, project into the future, maybe five years from now, where do you see uh, surgery centers with regard to utilizing software? I mean, I know, I kind of know what your answer is going to be, but it's kind of yeah. interesting to see what the marketplace is going to look like yeah. at that part. Well, I, one of the things I'll say with the pandemic, um, we know there's been an acceleration to, you know, individuals adopting technology. Mm-hmm. and um, Because of... Not having the staff to be able to not handle having the that staff paperwork. to be able to handle it, um, but um, no. When I look at the next five years, and we have, you know, we're seeing, you know, we already started to see the paradigm shift of everything going into the outpatient um, ambulatory settings off the hospital. It's going to be critical mm-hmm. um, to our surgery centers. It's actually one of our purpose and our passion is behind this and giving a lift into an area, even into these organizations, um, in terms of what needs to be you know, compiled from a data perspective and helping them manage it from electronic, you know, documentation. But also, I mean, moving that, it's not just for us. One of my um, passions as well is I see a huge value in the EMR side. Mm -hmm. That's not us. But when I hear administrators and I ask, I'm like, what is keeping you from adopting even EMRs? It's time. Yeah. And the time to implement and focus because they're like, I'm buried in all this other stuff. And so when I think about we start bringing these solutions, then more and more of what we do from a documentation standpoint um, will be digitized. More data will be able to drive in more meaningful ways. And the industry needs it. We're growing um, mm-hmm. leaps and bounds, and we're not going to stop. Yeah. And, um, and it's something that, 
like unlike our hospital side where i mean they've got much more bandwidth and bench strength mm-hmm. um you know they've been around i mean data's been collected for a long time we don't have that side of right. of, of you know and in the ambulatory setting and so um, we need to help give that lift. And we have so much turnover. And the people that come into the ASC industry don't have the degrees in all the different mm. uh, areas that the hospitals are able to hire. You know, you can hire, mm-hmm. you know, experts in uh, mm-hmm. data programming and, right. and finance and all those things. We just don't have the resources. We have to find it in one individual or a series of individuals. Very good point. Yeah. So, Amanda, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for talking to us. Appreciate it. Thank you, John. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. Oh. Our next interview is with Don Bisbee, the CEO and President of Value Health. So I'm here at the New York State uh, Association meeting in the fall of 2022 in Terrytown, New York, and I'm uh, joined by Don Bisbee. He is the CEO and President of Value Health. Welcome. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. I, you know, I've had Dan, you know, uh, on yeah. our, our podcast a couple times here, and uh, we always have a great conversation here. We're slightly different focus today. We're going to talk about, you know, what's happening in New York. New York is famous for, for being a state that the, the big management companies haven't come into traditionally. <laughs> and uh, a little bit of history for myself. I don't know. If, I've been in this business for 32 years. So um, one of my, my first center that I worked on was one of the first 20 centers. So Fascinating. I've lived in this world for that long, and it's, uh, you know, we've, we've just never really thought seriously about management companies and yeah. of course now we're starting to, to see them so talk a little bit about your adventure into uh, management management companies here in New York yeah sure thanks John so you know as we um, as value health as as some may know we uh, started in conjunction with new health as the management mm-hmm. company and our founder Dan tacit um, had the uh, I think the foresight to understand that the industry was going to change. Now, certainly the move to ASCs in itself was a change um, and continues to be a huge opportunity for value in the United States healthcare system. But I think the, the thought was, what's next? What's beyond that? And so Value Health was kind of born in this vision of those who pay for care are going to have a greater expectation for value uh, from those who provide care. And so that's where we began. And and it began by uh, thinking about uh, the concepts that are very familiar to all of us around consumerism. So what do we expect in our consumer world? And so why don't we have those same experiences in healthcare? And as we all know, that generally in healthcare, we, the consumer, uh, whether we at a given moment are a patient or not, we bend around healthcare and how it decides to function. And as more of the cost has been shifted uh, to the consumer and they're paying more through premiums and they're um, uh, all the, all the components of that, um, when you pay more, any of us, we have higher expectations. Mm-hmm. And that's really what's happening in um, healthcare. And so it's not just the convenience of the shift of side of service, which ASCs absolutely provide, mm-hmm. and in general, a lower cost, but it's taking that further and, and to say, what would change the experience and what would create a kind of draw for both the consumer to want to go there, uh, funded or supported by who pays for their health care, generally our employers, um, and how would we make sure we end up there, uh, and not just by the decision of our caregiver, but really by a directive by those who pay for our care. Right. And then when we get there, that we have this amazing experience, great outcomes, and a total value. So Value Health began to build what would a program look like that basically connects those who pay for care to those who provide it and 
take what the employers want, which is a better experience, great value, and I want to know that my people are going to end up in these locations, and I want to direct that because I'm funding the bill as the employer. And on the other side, and this is really what we'll talk more about um, today at the conference because there's so many of the ASC managers here, um, is what is it that we do to enable them to be ready to respond to that demand, making a choice? And that has to do with a programmatic approach to higher acute more complex cases, which we want to see in the ASC, but doing it in such a way that it's programmatic, driven by clinical protocols and evidence-based medicine, having the technology to capture all of these great things that are happening so we can report outbound back to those who pay, we got what we thought we were going to get. Um, And so that's kind of where Value Health took that step in. And then today, uh, we have kind of separated from the management. New Health is still managing, and Value Health is focused entirely on uh, the value-based care segment, engaging with employers through our engagement platform, and then working with ASCs and physicians on these programs um, that have started in orthopedics but are now moving fast into cardiology and bariatric. And you have a great example of a center in uh, Pennsylvania or uh, yeah. centers that I visited and talked about during one of our podcasts. Talk a little bit about that experience because I think it's important to see, you know, how everything can come together. Yeah, you know, when you when you take the perspective and you start with the consumer perspective, you begin to think differently than if you start with the healthcare setting perspective. And so that's what we did. And so where where that where that change is initiated is. Uh, even before this, the day of your surgery, we set up a interaction, and I'll use orthopedics as an example. We set up a time connecting with that um, patient to come to the center ahead of time. We greet them and talk about what to expect. We mm-hmm. talk about what will happen the day of, things they may need to do ahead of time, and let them know that part of that uh, day of experience, aside from the actual surgical event, will be that they'll stay a day or two with us dependent on their acuity level. We talk about what to expect beyond that. So we really foreshadow the entire event, Mm -hmm. Um, not just, hey, here's the things I need you to do so that we have a successful day of surgery. Certainly that's part of it, but much more than that. When they show up day of surgery, we greet them. I would describe much like one might be greeted if you were a known visitor to a five-star hotel. We know who you are. We know why you're there. Uh, we have, and they know the facility. They've already been there. That's and, right. And, and no concern morning of that correct. I that I can find this place because I'm already I've already got the jitters about yeah. what's going to happen. And when and when they get there, we take them right on into the intake and begin kind of just playing out what we told them would happen mm-hmm. that morning. Um, and so it's familiar. Familiarity creates comfort. They go through, they have um, a a great procedure, and when they come out, we take them right into the stay suite area, which Mm -hmm. is, in most cases, directly adjacent to the facility. It's not a hospital Mm -hmm. facility, but it's um, licensed as a hotel, and we take care of them there for one to two days, and the great thing is that during that stay, we get them their first round of PT. By the way, oftentimes, we'll have spouses who stay the night, and that's okay. They've told us what they want to eat, so they get exactly what they want. That's comfortable. Um, and we enroll them in our uh, technology so that when they go home, we're able to stay in contact mm-hmm. with them. And then when they're ready and we make sure that they ambulate and that they walk about a half mile before they leave, if we're talking about a joint. And then um, we stay with them digitally or by phone for mm-hmm. 365 days. And the, the reason is just very simple. 
we want to ensure that they heal well, defined as what mm-hmm. they would say, when I heal from this, here's success, here's what I'd like to do, wrestle with my kids, get with my grandkids, whatever it may be. And so that entire experience and that we stay in contact with them is just really us bending around them mm-hmm. and, and, and really making the program be consumer-oriented like we'd expect in other parts of our life. And uh, as a result, uh, we consistently get net promoter scores of 97, 98, which really says to us, you know, inside that net promoter score survey, the most important thing is, would you recommend this? Mm -hmm. Right. And that's what we're looking for is someone had such a great impact uh, around how this experience and the outcome that they got that they would say to someone that they love, yeah, you should go do that. So that's what we're after. Well, and, and something that we need to make uh, clear, too, is that when they're discharged from the surgery center to the, the stay, suites. stay suites center, yeah. it, it would be equivalent to being discharged home, except they're, they're, it's, not those, they're, it's not like staying in a hospital. It's not that you're, you're it's a stable patient. You got uh, it. But because you're controlling the what would normally be happening in the home, mm-hmm. um, you're, you have a, a much better chance of a better outcome. You and it. you guarantee it. That's right. So part of the, uh, I'll say the tech stack and the technology that we use is to collect really important pieces of information that tell us um, that we've been very consistent with our provider partners. Um, we know the status, we know the progress, and we know that when we take all of that data, it tells us that we can confidently move them on to the next step. And because we've done this, and the data that's so important in clinical care shows that repeatability and reliability of these outcomes, mm-hmm. then uh, we go so far, because we believe that the primary representation of value is that you guarantee your work. Mm-hmm. And so we wrap a 90-day prospective warranty around that mm-hmm. um, around that care. And that gives, of course, the employers as the health sponsor for that patient gives them great confidence because our, our data would show that we have um, significantly lower complications, infection rates, all of those things are our top 5% in the nation. But even so, it gives them comfort that there's not going to be additional uh, cost from that. That right. really that that cost of that single event all in is all that they will pay. And that creates comfort for both the employer and the patient. So talking about what the subject of your upcoming speech, um, what, what do you think the challenges are? One thing I should point out is that many, if not most of the listeners of the podcast are, are, you know, tend to be the freestanding facilities or or, or physician owned facilities. What do you see in the next, you know, three to five years as a challenges for remaining those fiercely independent surgery centers that are, are not affiliated? What, you know, I mean, obviously there's pros and cons of it. So talk a little bit about where you think that the challenges are going to be for those centers. Well, I think that, um, number one, we um, are absolute advocates for the independence. Mm-hmm. And I believe that because of the changes that are uh, needing to occur in healthcare, that um, it's not that you cannot have um, strong relationships with health, uh, health systems. You can. Mm-hmm. We have some of those. But you have to make very sure that you have aligned incentives, especially during a time of desired change, because healthcare is complex and many of the economic models are deeply ingrained into the motivation for parties. And so we find that uh, independents uh, are strong advocates for change. They want to see their practice grow. They want to see um, their facility uh, grow and they want to be rewarded for the great quality that they produce. And we think that the programs that we have and the models that we have that allow them to take on risk 
um, safely and mm-hmm. benefit from it are part of the answer. And so we want to see the independents remain uh, independent and, and grow with them. I think some of the challenges that um, they're going to have to be prepared for is as the voice of consumerism rise and those who mm-hmm. pay for care have greater expectations, how as an independent will they be prepared to respond to that? So let's just take risk for a moment. Mm -hmm. It has a lot of different definitions, but let's focus in on um, anything that would create downside risk for them. How is it that they can uh, lean in and have confidence that both economically and clinically and operationally, they're ready to go down that path if they have greater numbers of employers and thus cases they're asking for that. And we think Mm -hmm. that is what's going to happen. Um, I think that they need minimally tighten up their operations on efficiencies, cost controls. Mm -hmm. Um, Those things are paramount. But I think working with someone that is going to have a platform for them to step into that, um, there's a lot of complexity to healthcare. And I think as any single independent ASC, I think they're going to be looking for someone to help them and guide them through that. The reason one wants to go down that is obviously to grow their business. So yeah. a big part of what we do, and I think they're going to need, is how do they take this uh, willingness to adopt programs that have higher quality, higher uh, consumer experience, and potentially the uh, management of risk, you would do that to grow your business. And so what we do is we connect them to a broad network that Mm -hmm. we take to the employers so that the employers who desire this know where the people who want to do this are. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a big part of it. In some form or fashion, when you do the things that are going to create greater value for those who are essentially your customers, mm-hmm. you need to have a mechanism to make that marketplace aware that you're willing to do that and that you are doing that. I think as an independent, that can be hard, mm-hmm. but finding out mechanisms that can make you part of a broader network that creates greater awareness is a strong step that they should consider. Um, otherwise, it's you're a bit limited to the catchment that just knows you in your immediate community. Uh, and with national employers and regional employers, yeah. sometimes where the decisions made is not directly in that community. In that community yeah. So one of the things we like to do is make sure that nationally, those that are really w- willing to go down the value-based care route, um, that those employers that may not have the decision seat in that same community are aware that in that community where they have employees, mm-hmm. there are providers who want to and embrace this model. And that's a very good point, too, for... Uh, for those out there that are making decisions, if you exist in a community that has a very large organization that is not based in your community. Yeah. Uh, and likewise, if you're in a community that doesn't have that, mm-hmm. there's probably not a heck of a lot of value. Uh, I mean, other than the value that you bring, you know, able to, to, uh, to prove the quality, you know, through the systems that you have available. Yeah. I think that uh, we're going to increasingly see generally payers are going to impose, um, greater quality, mm-hmm, um, measures, expectations. Yeah. And I think that even, um, the generally that the payers are going to lean in on the experience of, uh, and the value of the consumer. So I think we're going to see these, these characteristics show up yeah. from almost anyone who is has a fiduciary for um, right. the cost of care. And definitely those organizations that have sophisticated models out there yes. are used, especially those that are self-insured. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, there. self-insured employers are the are really the catalyst around this change. And it's because what they, they clearly know is insurance is not the old, I'll say the old fashioned concept yeah. that they're protected. They're not when those costs go over, they come right back to them. 
Absolutely. Don, this has been a pleasure. You've got to rush off and actually do the speech now. So <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. John, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Our next discussion was with Eric Evans, who's the CEO for Surgery Partners. During that conference, there was a panel discussion involving national companies that are looking to join Team New York, as they said. And this is kind of innovative for New York. In the past, really, we have a very heavy presence of of physician-owned surgery centers. And if there were any partnerships, they generally were with uh, hospital systems. So uh, the influx of the national organizations in the state of New York are relatively new. And that's what the focus of this conversation was with Eric. So let's listen. I'm here at the uh, fall New York State Association meeting in Terrytown, New York. And joining me is Eric Evans. He is the CEO for Surgery Partners. Welcome. Thanks, John. Glad to be here. And you just uh, finished a session. Um, I actually don't remember the exact name of the session. I listened to it, but I can't remember the name. Tell, tell us about the uh, the title and uh, and what your uh, focus was. Sure. No, I was, it was a, a real privilege to be able to kick off the uh, keynote here today. And we, we were just really talking about kind of where the industry is today and what, what the next five years looks like for ASCs. Absolutely. And you, no, so you, you were talking, the first thing you talked about were the tailwinds of the industry. That's so right. mention that because I think that's a fascinating and, and, and something that really uh, resonates not only for our New York listeners, but everybody nationally. Yeah, no, it, it really, really are so many tailwinds. Um, and you think about the, the three biggest constituents for ASCs, physicians, payers, and patients all meaningfully prefer the ASC setting. Yeah. And so you think about from a patient perspective, it's cheaper, it's simpler. Um, you have, they have a better experience. It's the data shows that right. uh, for a payer, you know, it's when I go talk to payers, unlike when I was on the hospital side of the business, when I, yeah. when I talk to payers today, they're always saying, how can I, how, how can we work together to move more patients to your setting? And then from a physician perspective, it's just their efficiency and their ability yeah. to have a voice and actually help drive quality and service. And so you look at those, those are tremendous tailwinds. And then just from a data standpoint, there's kind of three big things I would point to. One is higher acuity patients coming yeah. our way. So you think about technology that now allows things uh, like like total hips, total knees, spine, increasingly cardiology, yeah. things that you, you know, 10 years ago you would say that's never going to be done yeah, anymore. Right, exactly. Right? Right. Yeah. Um, so that's a big one. The, the second one is just the, the it's becoming a preferred model. Even in places where we've been there for a long time, like ophthalmology, GI, you're still seeing that last bit of movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and quite honestly, it's just becoming a patient preference. Yeah. Um, and then lastly, of course, look, we're getting older as a nation. And, and the the increasing aging of our population is, is a tailwind for the, the biggest three specialties we talk about right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is basically musculoskeletal, uh, GI, and ophthalmology, but increasingly cardiology. All mm-hmm. of those uh, procedurally are really tied to age. Well, and of course, the pandemic uh, caused a, a huge change. I mean, now people are, you know, it really defined hospitals as those places that you go when you have a, a very severe situation and that perhaps who, who wants to go have an elective procedure anywhere but in a surgery center when you could you have a risk of, well, there's two parts of that. The risk of getting something that sure. you don't want to get, yeah. and also the need for that hospital to be ready to take care of those other types of cases. I mean, that's what a hospital is there for, much more so than doing this uh, this outpatient yeah, I stuff. Totally agree. I mean, across the country, we saw physicians or surgeons that maybe maybe they couldn't go to the hospital either because of a COVID situation or they were forced to try somewhere new because their patients kind of pushed them. Yeah. You know, that was a big change in the last couple of years where they they saw like these focus factories. Yeah. Um, what the differentiation you can do on how you control quality, how you control process 
process, how you make it simpler. Um, and, and, you know, with the Hospital Without Walls program that CMS put in place, there were several uh, ASCs across the country that were able to also show, hey, it's not even just about the stuff we do today. There's a lot of this higher acuity stuff that can be safely moved into our setting. So I'm with you. I think COVID, COVID actually did change some mindsets. Mm-hmm. Of course, ASCs have been growing for quite some time. Right. But it does feel like we've, we've got to more of an inflection point where patients realize how many more options they have for things they used to think they had to go to the hospital for. Right. Well, and they're, they're literally demanding it now. That's right. I mean, in many ways, I think one of our marketing mistakes in the past is that we've always said, let's market to our insurance companies, let's market to the doctors. That's right. But now we're learning we, if we market to the patients, they're going to tell the doctors you know, right from the get-go that this is where I want to be. I don't want to be in that hospital. Totally agree. One, one thing I would mention, and it's kind of a, a little bit unique to us, but we have, uh, actually a lot of the companies have these, we have 19 surgical hospitals, which were physician-owned before mm-hmm. the moratorium. Those hospitals, because they're focused factories, they, they're still way cheaper than the traditional acute care. Yeah, and right. what they allow in combination with ASCs where we have them is it allows a physician-backed way to do, really do even higher acuity stuff within a service line. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think there's, again, I go back to this idea of when you partner with physicians at the table, yeah. um, it, it just it's powerful. It's powerful in the hospital setting because those hospitals, even though they're licensed as hospitals, they have way, way higher satisfaction. Yeah. Uh, they are focused on one or two things, and they do them extremely well at a lower cost. Right. Well, which brings up uh, totally off, yeah. off, off topic here. Uh, you were talking about the Hospital Without Walls program, yeah. um, which uh, none of the centers in New York actually went for the program yeah. that I can think of, yeah. and uh, certainly none of, none of our centers at Amateur Healthcare Strategies. Talk, but you did have some experience, so yeah. I, I've never actually talked to anybody with some experience on it. Tell yeah. me more about yeah. that. We've had a few. I mean, there's requirements. You have to have uh, you have to have significant coverage, and so there yeah. are there are expenses you have to put in place to kind of mirror the, the the Medicare requirements to do that. But what it allowed, what it allows for, is in that program you get paid at the, the HOPD Medicare rate, right? Um, um, and you're allowed to do uh, higher acuity procedures than you normally would be able to do on a typical ASC. Right. And so for a lot of communities that were hard hit by COVID, it was a savior. Yeah, like all yeah. of a sudden doctors are like, okay, I can do this. And, and we've got approval. And it allowed for patients to be treated who needed treatment in a safe environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's one of those where we don't have a ton of centers that did it. But mm-hmm. the ones that have did it have had such good experiences. I do think for CMS, it's going to be an interesting case study, which is, hey, you know, yeah. we, we did this quite well. We've proven procedures that maybe aren't on the list today are quite safe to be doing. We talked about total shoulders in the session. You know, there are some of these procedures where, you know, long term, it's the right answer for everyone to make sure it's in the setting with the highest value. What I find fascinating about this program, though, is, of course, any new HOPDs that were developed, what is it, past 2016, that were off-site, were reimbursed at the ASC rate, and yet under this hospital without walls are reimbursed at the HOP. So you literally have surgery centers that have been around long, you know, a while that converted to this uh, yeah. Whereas a, a newer center, you know, is getting a lower reimbursement. But it was a really interesting answer to some of the pandemic challenges Absolutely. in certain markets. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. How are they going to get? back to being an ASC? Because that's one thing I've heard. There is some complications with that. Yeah. So I think, I mean, well, the, the challenge, I think the complications are all of a sudden things they, they were able to do for a period of time, they can't do all of them anymore. And so yeah. I think it creates pressure from the physician side. Yeah. Um, and certainly, I mean, there, there will be a, you know, it was, it was a, it'll be a financial step back, but right. um, we don't anticipate that being a problem. What we, what we saw it as is just a really nice experiment um, yeah. and to show what ASCs are capable of. And, you know, we were proud to also be part of the solution, obviously, during the pandemic. So. Yeah, and I think we all we, we actually really should probably document that whole exercise, you know, get some uh, speech because we all know this is going to happen again, yeah. um, unfortunately. Yeah. And I think that uh, that that's definitely it was a wonderful solution. Um, talk a little bit about cardiology because it's yeah. one of those areas I'm fascinated. Of course, 
we're sitting in New York right now, but of course we have a national audience, which will also sure. probably hear your speech. Yep. But uh, for those of you that are not aware of New York, cardiology is not allowed yet. But uh, talk about tailwinds, huh? Sure. Yeah, I mean, so cardiology is one of those specialties that I think it should have been in the ASC space a long time ago, but mm-hmm. I'm glad it's here now. Um, so having, you know, I spent a lot of my career in the acute care world, and you know, it's probably 15, 20 years ago, it was pretty well um, understood that hospitals could have large and successful and safe interventional cardiology programs. Yeah. With without open heart backup. And, you know, that kind of was the time period where you could have argued that, okay, well, this should be done in ASCs. Yeah. And in fact, uh, you know, one of the markets I worked in El Paso, Texas, you know, years ago, they had a stand, freestanding ASCs that were doing, you know, PCIs uh, with commercial patients, but not with Medicare. So mm-hmm. this has been around a long time. I think the, the government, uh, so the reason CMS approved it is quite honestly, the efficacy has been proven. Yeah. Um, these patients they go home same day. They have great outcomes. Um, and if you think about, uh, we talked a little bit about the size of our market. You know, it's, it's $150 billion market if you look five years ahead. So right. today it's $90 billion. Um, you know, about $35 billion of that $90 billion of outpatient surgery is done in ASCs. Mm-hmm. Um, but that 90 grows to 150 with the introduction of high-end orthopedics and cardiology. And, and so we just see a tremendous opportunity for savings. Um, you'll recall the slide. I mean, almost everything in Medicare is 50% cheaper, at least, yeah. in, in the ASC setting. So uh, I'm, I'm extremely excited about what can happen in cardiology. And look, the, the way the technology is changing, and I referenced this, I mean, there are procedures um, that, you know, 10 years ago, if you had to have a valve replacement, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you, you would have to have your chest cracked and you'd, you'd yeah, it'd be a huge ordeal. Now that procedure, the TAVR procedures, it's happening in hospital outpatient departments. And many of those patients are able to go home within 24 hours. Oh, yeah. And I just think the technology, you know, we have this kind of vision of what ASCs can be based on today's technology, but I never dreamed five years ago what's now in the outpatient setting. Yeah. And so I actually think, you know, we're probably conservative because I think there are going to be more and more things that will allow patients to be treated uh, treated successfully with great outcomes in our setting. Absolutely. I, I just saw a, a total hip for the first time probably about six months ago. I remember my mother having that procedure, you know, 15 years ago yeah. and was in the hospital for, a, you know, more than a week. Yep. And I was, I had to see this procedure. I just couldn't believe it could be done. And it was incredible. And it was incredibly fast, yep. too, which is even That's more amazing. amazing. Um, you had a slide up about, which I thought was fascinating, 500,000 people and the $30 billion. You're talking, talk about that more, the, uh, yeah, I mean, so I think one thing that's changed in the ASC space as higher acuity procedures are starting to come over. So, you know, GI ophthalmology, those early ENT, those early procedures, they would save significant money, but on a per procedure basis in the big picture of a payer, mm-hmm. didn't move the needle necessarily. Yeah, yeah. Now, when you're talking about uh, hips, knees, spine, cardiology, it's often 10000 to 30000 a procedure difference. Yeah. And so when you're, when you're a payer, you've, you're thinking about, or you're an employer, and you think about, gosh, I have a lot of these procedures I can save 50% in a system right now, as we know, the math's really hard, right? Like healthcare right. is too expensive in this country. Um, we are we are uniquely positioned to be part of that solution. And so, yeah, I mean, you look at the, I even just look at our system. We have uh, 120 ASCs, 19 surgical hospitals. We did our best estimate looking at kind of, if we weren't in those markets, what would the alternative be? Mm-hmm. And our savings for the system is about a billion dollars. And so you, you sit there and you say, you know, why shouldn't more of this stuff move? And as it does, that, that, that 500,000 people being treated and saving, you know, yeah. tens and tens of billions, it's a, it's a big deal. And I, I, one thing I'd say for all, everybody in the ASC industry, what's great about our industry 
is you can be somewhere where we're going to grow and do good, but we're going to do well. But we're most importantly, we are part of the answer. Like this mm-hmm. is this is important for consumers. It's important for access. Um, and I did give a shout out to New York in my in my comments because this is a state where because the dollar follows the patient, yeah. Medicaid patients can be treated in the, in the appropriate space. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm really hoping nationally they can look at the model in New York because. Right now, in most states, just because of the way the dollars are funded, yeah. the patients in Medicaid programs often get treated in the highest cost places and not necessarily the best cases. That's for them, right, so. right, right. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a very good point about New York. And, you know, the Medicaid uh, program is actually pretty yep. good here yep. uh, compared to other uh, locations. Um, you're also talking about specifically the New York growth. Of course, uh, I, I founded the New York State Association. Yep. I've been around yep. for a long time. And, you know, when we founded it in 1990, imagine that. That that, wow. that the New York you know experience has only been thirty one years thirty two years old thirty two years old now and uh, and of course at that time there were twenty centers and six people sitting we're we're Could recording this in a boardroom yeah. here and we had a room like this now and of course look at the the number sure. of people out there but we're still not there aren't we no no I mean yeah. it's it's well it's interesting I think if you look at New York and you say gosh you know thirty one years ago there was a lot of forward thinking people and uh, you know unfortunately for New Yorkers and I think this is going to catch up but you mm-hmm. know we mentioned on the on the uh, on the presentation and, you know, the, one of the lower per capita kind of ASC states in the country. So the opportunity is huge yeah. uh, for savings, for the right answer for patients. And so um, I think it, it's not just New York. There's a lot of states that still have opportunity. We had a slide that showed, you know, there's roughly 6,000 ASCs today. It's going to grow by 1,000 over the next seven yeah. years. I mean, there's just a tremendous amount of focus on this. And I think New York stands to, um, as a state, stands to benefit in tremendous ways as your as your yeah. group and as the industry grows. So uh, now, of course, a lot of our listeners are independent ASCs, sure. fiercely independent of ASCs. Yep. Uh, but of course, you come from the big company. And, uh, you know, of course, I, I, you know, my company, of course, is pretty big in a, yep. in a different side. But uh, so it's interesting. Of course, we're kind of on opposite sides, you know, yeah. the corporate model versus the, sure. the fiercely independent model. But let's face it, there's there's room, obviously, for both. We've been coexisting for a long period of time here. And uh, I'm fascinated by where we're heading and how there will be more partnerships between those different models. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, no, I think, look, I, I, I understand that most uh, most physicians who have chosen to go and, and found an ASC, they're independent by nature, right? They've already yeah. proven that they want to pull, they want to have control, they want to do things uh, their way. And and I, I will say we wouldn't have 150, 60 partnerships with physicians if we didn't understand that it truly has to be a partnership. Yeah, um, I think point. in our world, I, I would point out for us, you know, 98% of our revenue is just two-way partnerships, just us and mm-hmm. docs. And so our kind of our sweet spot is we partner with independent physicians and the only way that works is if we bring real value so yeah. so we don't we don't partner to buy and flip we partner to buy and own forever and yeah. so we all together collectively say you know what can we do together where we can bring additional resources. Sometimes it's things like supply chain, having national scale and scope. Sometimes yeah. it's things um, like uh, being able to bring in certain clinical resources to drive acuity. It's a, it's a number of, 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 of areas where we feel like we can help. But that only works if there's additional value. Yeah. And it only works if there's a partnership where you can really – you know, partnerships are in many ways like marriages. Like you, you have to run at conflict. Like if there's something yeah. that doesn't work, you have to have a partner where you can sit down and get through those things. Um, you know, the one thing we've learned after 150 of those is that uh, number one, you always end up with a better answer with the physicians at the table with you. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's it, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, you know we don't drive one model because honestly one model doesn't work in our world. Well said. And yeah. so so for us, we try to find that sweet spot. But we understand. Look, there are some centers that aren't ready for that, and like mm-hmm. honestly, they're fiercely independent. There are others that say. You know, gosh, I, I, I know where what's happening in my market 
And with the level of capital and with the the, the, the speed of the change, yeah. you know, I just I think I need some help, but I still want to be a big part of it. And I think we try to be that. Our, our goal really is to enable independent physicians to stay independent. Mm-hmm. And um, we think that's a really important thing. Um, and we do think the speed, the scale, and the investment starting to change in the industry in a way where I think partnerships more important than ever. And I, I mentioned our, our our mission statement is to enhance patient quality of life through partnership. So everything yeah. we do um, is is through partnership, which means that while we have a voice, really, again, the physicians are what allows this industry to have such great service and quality scores. And so mm-hmm. we understand, like at the end of the day, how you win in this game is to find the right partners and build long term partnerships. I, I love the the fact that. Almost every other word that you say is partners. It's funny. I'm, I'm probably going to have Sue add up the number of times you use partners, <laughs> so much, even yeah. in your speech. Yeah. But that is so critical. And I think that's really uh, perhaps the secret. It's right in your name, obviously. It's yeah. a secret to your success. Uh, you know, there was a recent uh, uh, study done that found that hospitals are less and less frequently partnering with these big companies out there, uh, you know, yep. management companies, yep. which I thought was interesting. And, and I was trying to think, you know, what is the future? Does that mean that management companies won't have the force? But you just kind of talked about, you yeah. know, that as, as hospitals get this niche over here, this surgical niche over here is going to be, uh, you know, the, the purview of, of companies like yours. Yeah, it's really interesting for hospitals. You know, we are talking with some hospital systems. We will do some partnerships with, yeah. li- with like-minded health systems that are, aren't looking just to kind of slowly kind of keep things the same. Yeah, right, um, right. And so for us, it's, it's really about that. But, you know, I will say this, having been a hospital CEO for a lot of my career and run big hospital systems, it's really hard for a hospital system to run a big, big all-things-to-all-people hospital system, mm-hmm. take their hat off go to a kind of a rounding air small facility and suddenly have a different interaction. And so that's where you've seen, I mean, they've been talking about for a long time, you know, partnering, but it's hard. And that's why often they need a middleman or they need someone that can kind of do that. Now, look, there are systems that have done it successfully, uh, but it's a mind shift change. I think the good news is because the ASC industry is starting to to gain so much traction, hospitals will be forced to be better partners for physicians. Mm -hmm. And figure out how to leave them alone. Right. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, we have hospital partners. We don't don't have partners, but, you know, we work with hospitals also in this space. And the challenge we always have with them is they they think they can bring something to the table to enhance the outpatient experience, whereas we say, no, I think we can bring something to you (laughs) that you may be able to use to enhance your experience in the surgery side. When you're that big and you've been around that long, there's there's a level of arrogance that can creep into it. But I I would say, too, this is another chance for me, our 19 surgical hospitals, what's interesting about them is what it allows physicians to do is to have the full range in a physician-owned environment, the full range of services where they're not, they're able to be in the ASC, they're able to be in the hospital, and they actually, you know, it kind of empowers them because they're not dependent on a hospital that yeah, way. Yeah. They have their own kind of hospital where they can do things. So I, I think we, but but again, I, I, having been in the hospital world a long time, I have a lot of sympathy for what they're up against, and mm-hmm. I think they're increasingly realizing uh, that the path forward has to be different, and they have yeah. to start changing their model. I agree. And unfortunately, my background is hospital. I don't yeah. say it. Yeah, it's interesting how you're still admitting that, you know, yeah, out there. But, well, but. Yeah, look, there's amazing people in the industry. Yeah, and, and, and obviously, at the, at the end of the day, we need hospitals. Yeah. But we need hospitals to play the role that they can play best. That, and that's so well yeah. said. That, and I think that's the big thing that hopefully everybody learned from COVID. It, it has been frustrating to me that I think there are pockets where, you know, they literally don't get it. We have we have hospital systems in parts of it, New York, for example, that are running at 100% capacity right now. And it's not even flu season yet. Yeah. What did we learn? Yeah. Well, once, they should be shifting those cases off. Yeah, yeah, what's right? so frustrating there, too, is, 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 is you see um, hospitals, I always say they have an edifice complex. They love building big buildings. Yeah, right? yeah, so yeah, and part of the problem with that is you can imagine in a place where the hospitals are 100% full, the right answer is 
take the lower acuity stuff, get it to the right side of care. But often the answer is they build more expensive buildings. And like, yeah. so I think hopefully we're getting to this point where that just rationally, you, you, you don't need to do that because yeah. the answer really is use the right value, right location. And, uh, you know, some systems are more progressive than others. Absolutely. Yeah. Eric, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. And thanks for, for uh, making the trek out to New York. Thank you, John. Really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. The next interview was with Emblem Health. Emblem Health is an insurance company uh, working in the state of New York, and they had an administrative panel discussion during the conference entitled How to Team Up with Payers, a Roadmap. And I had an opportunity to talk to Carol Huffman, who's Vice President of Strategic Partnerships with Emblem Health, and Lama Elzin, MD, who is the Senior Medical Director of Emblem Health. So let's listen to that interview. So this is John Gailey. We're here at the September 2022 Fall Conference for the New York State Association Ambulatory Surgery Centers in Terrytown, New York. And I have with me from Emblem Health, and we're going to be talking about insurance and the relationship between insurance companies and the surgery center industry. I'd like to have everybody introduce themselves. Uh, I'm Lama Al-Zain. I'm the Senior Medical Director for Population Health and Quality at Emblem, and I'm a practicing physician. I'm Carol Huffman. I'm, I'm the Vice President of Strategic Partnerships at Emblem Health. Thank you. And I'm Doug Vasquez. I am the Project Manager Leader um, for Emblem Health. And uh, so I'm recording this just after you finished an uh, administrative panel, one of our panel discussions here at the conference on how to team up with payers, a roadmap. So you did a great job. Uh, I was not there for the whole session, so we did quickly uh, go through and we've been doing a lot of recordings here. So can you give me a brief overview of what topics you talk, cover? And then we're going to go into some of the nitty gritty because there's really some great information that you provided. Yes. Um, first, we really covered the concept of low-value care and high-value care. And that was because we wanted to make sure that the ambulatory surgery centers understood that they are really high-value care. Mm -hmm. And high-value care is important for the whole ecosystem, the whole healthcare ecosystem, to thrive. And that's really the first thing we covered. Then we covered the important aspects of an ambulatory surgery center from their perspective and then also the health plan's perspective and the importance of having a partner. To be a partner, you have to have a partner. Mm -hmm. So we talked about having courage to talk to each other and work to each other um, as partners in order to really help make sure that high value care is achieved. And, and you and you're using a term that, by the way, so this is probably our seventh interview that we've had during this thing. And it's so funny. I, a couple of the other people, I, I, if I were to have somebody count the number of times partner or partnership was used in this conference, it would be by far the most uh, widely used terminology here. And of course, many times you, I'm an accountant. So when we talk about uh, partnerships, we talk about that financial partnership. But that is not what all what we're talking about here, because we're not necessarily talking about a financial relationship. We're talking about an inter interdependent relationship. So, so talk about how you can build that type of um, a, a relationship with uh, the ambulatory surgery centers and the importance of it. Yeah. Um, so I think it's important that we're talking here um, about clinical partnership. Yes. Um, this is a healthcare, mm -hmm. you know, uh, issue and a healthcare. Uh, We're not uh, selling widgets. Yeah, ex <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so patients first, and mm -hmm. it really, 
patients was always first, but now with the ever-changing healthcare system around us and all the policies, the healthcare organization of tomorrow needs to understand that, whether you are a payer, whether you are a provider, whether you are, you know, selling things for uh, the healthcare industry, or they are a hospital, this is the patient is and should and was always but should be the center. Right. And, and this is why we talked here about clinical partnership. Um, I think in one of the last, last lecture about safety, they were saying, you know, finances are important, but your culture and your healthcare organization should be, you know, your clinical first, patient first, your right. staff, your team. And finance, of course, is there because, you know, if you don't pay people, no one will work for you. But when the first three or four, um, you know, part of your culture are, are focused on the patient and the team, the finances will fall in place. Right. Uh, and this is what's important about the partnership. It's, it's both sides. We need to have the clinical partnership and the administrator partnership all together to have to be able to have a good uh, project. And one of them is here, as you see, the many partnership you have for ASC. Right. And I'll add to that that it's really important for society and for all of us to try to spend the healthcare dollar wisely. Yeah. And so a lot of what we talked about today was it's so important for ourselves, our friends, our family, our businesses. It's very personal. Yes. I mean, that's exactly what we, we unlike so many other products, we're, we, we are all consumers of the same, of the product that we're talking about. That's right. About and we have a, we called it a bucket of money. We have a bucket of money and we have this to spend together. We want to work together to spend it in the most efficient way so mm -hmm. that we can address important things like healthcare equity, like access. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're in an ambulatory surgery center for your, for your procedure, chances are you're going to get in earlier. Yeah. You're, it's going to take less time. Your outcomes will be better. And so let's use the hospitals for what they're good at. Yeah. Let's use the ambulatory surgery centers for what they're good at. You know, and let's use primary care for what they're good at. Let's just yeah. work together. I think, Lama, you said it best when you said, the healthcare um, ecosystem of the future doesn't have enemies. Yeah. So maybe you could just say that one more time. I think that was so important. Yeah. I mean, as we know all, the healthcare system here is, is so, uh, you know, uh, divided and fragmented. And mm -hmm. part of it is like each um, industry, um, even if we are all under healthcare, but there's like f many industries. So the mm -hmm. ambulatory care uh, surgery centers, hospital, physician, right. um, the, the, you know, so. the nurse, uh, the nursing uh, staff. Uh, then if you talk about the bigger, you know, the nursing home, the, uh, you know, the home care, each one has their own kind of, uh, you know, uh, agenda, but also their own uh, roles and responsibilities. Right. And in the past is like, you know, each will do their own job. And then that's it. I did my own job. If there's something went yeah. wrong, it's with the other. Right. So, um, so that doesn't doesn't work anymore because mm -hmm. really we saw where we are, where our population health outcome from that kind of fragmented care. Yeah. It's not going to be a magic wand where things going to be changed and everything is uh, is you know uh, the world is ha yeah. happy happier. It's not going to happen overnight. Yeah, this exactly. It's not going to happen overnight. And this is what we talked about yeah. about small steps, partnership, partnership. We're not talking coming the first week and saying we're going to do the best yeah. value-based agreements and then it's going to be the highest quality. I mean, to, it, there's a lot of barrier. We have to be realistic. Right. But we start with baby steps. Com the first one, 
you know, baby steps in communication, mm-hmm. even from a, you know, health plan perspective versus a, a hospital partner and ambulatory care surgery uh, uh, partners. Let's sit together and see how we can help together just with basic communication, with basic escalation. If there's a patient's issue or if there's a, like a, a, a prior auth issue or if mm-hmm. there is, a, you know, you need something from the PCP, let's get those partners on the table and just have each other's number maybe as a first step right. and know about each other and know what each other's role is and how can we help each other. And once we have this kind of cultures of be open and not thinking of the others as the enemy, we will we will go to the next step. And this, the second one is, you know, but, but also not everyone is on the same page mm-hmm. due to like maybe IT issue, maybe due to, um, you know, culture issue, um, you know, resources issue, you know, so understanding and aligning incentive is very important. You know, finding partners who are thinking the same way, even if we, they're not there yet, but they want right. to go there. So aligning on those kind of what drive you, what's your culture, aligning financial incentive with clinical programs is very important. You can have the best clinical, you know, resources and doctors and nurses, but if your financial model doesn't uh, support that, you know, you cannot survive, right? And then if you have, you know, a lot of money and resources, but your culture and your clinical program doesn't support or doesn't doesn't align with that, also is not going to be successful. And at the end, what we are interested in as, as a health plan and me from a clinical perspective in a health plan is clinical outcome. Mm-hmm. And once we have these starting to align together and have a better communication, I think some of the inefficiency will decrease and then we will start seeing better and better outcome. And our population health outcome mm-hmm. as a population in the United States will improve. You know, as the industry has evolved, when when I got into it some 30 years ago, the the insurance companies had a completely different attitude. And not to pick on you poor guys, but, you know, because obviously you've evolved, as have we. We've all evolved in this, uh, this um, you know, over those years. And I still remember those conversations at the beginning. It was really all about money on your side and utilization review. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's and, and most of the people that were involved, you, the, the, the medical directors and the organizations, the physicians and the, you know, it was all about utilization review. Get them in, get them out. Uh, you know, get over it. Tell me about how those things have evolved in your uh, lifetime, your, your career also, as well as how it is continuing to evolve now. So I um, have also been in the healthcare system for over 35 yeah. years. Um, and you're absolutely correct. I think that one of the ways that health insurance is evolving is around value-based insurance yeah. design. And that allows us to be more accountable for working with employers and our clients to build product designs Mm -hmm. that incentivize people to do the right thing, incentivize the member, incentivize the providers in a positive way to really take control of how they navigate the healthcare system, allowing it to be easier to navigate. That's really our job. Right. And to make sure we have all the right tools in the toolbox mm-hmm. for the providers so they can make sure that um, their patients are getting the right care mm-hmm. at the right time in the, the right, right setting. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree, Carolyn. And, and one thing I think is uh, important, you know, 
it's it's no again it's not a happy picture it's still you know there's different health mm-hmm. plan with different you know culture but mm-hmm. one of the things um, what we are trying to to push and especially in the last couple of years we are in a transformation and many mm-hmm. other plans also are in a transformation the whole industry the whole industry, industry we yeah. we have to understand again that healthcare cannot continue like that yeah. that's that's one that patients are not and should not be passive in receiving their care they're right. very active there's a center and then now in this kind of amazon walmart all of this kind of you know word the, 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 you know we have you ha- we have to think differently mm-hmm. uh, the, the patient is thinking differently we have their satisfaction is is important and um, as well as the quality metrics as well as the finances, but those are, are, are three. And then the patient comes first and the quality comes first. Mm-hmm. And then even with the CMS guidance and all of the quality kind of guidance, they're pushing towards patient satisfaction. Mm-hmm. So our patients are at the centers of what we do. So the other transformation that you, you, I want to talk also about is, you know, traditionally it all, as you said, it was b- about utilization management, but it didn't reach anywhere, right? Right, right? It reached that there is more uh, 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 kind of uh, opposition between the, the different health sector. Right. So we have to think there about no it differently. To, exactly. Uh, quality. No, yeah. yeah, it just you do their own thing. We do, you know, the, the yeah. health can health plan do their own thing. They approve, they deny, whatever that is. Minimal communication and who who is who is uh, not benefiting from that? Our patients, right. our quality outcomes. So we have to think differently. And what we're trying to do in the last couple of years is, um, you know, to try to depend less on utilization management, but more on partnership. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't want to tell physician. I'm a physician myself, and I hate it, and I still hate it to this day. You know, even sometimes with my own plan, I got yeah, frustrated. Yeah. I mean, we have to paint the, the the reality, but that you know, we don't have to tell dictate the patient-doctor relationship. On the contrary, we want to enhance it and we want to let the patient be patient and the doctor be the doctor and we're here to support. And part of the example we gave this morning with the different partnership we presented is this is what we want. We, we listened. Mm-hmm. Okay, we listened. We bring partners together from you know, surgeon, ambulatory care center, hospitals, mm-hmm. PCPs, because these are all the 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 corners represented in a patient journey. And mm-hmm. then we kind of moved around the patient journey and then see how we can partner together to have better quality outcome. And this, we didn't talk about any utilization, you know, management. We don't want to, we want to try to move away from that, yeah, even in yeah. many other um you know, setting, we are moving away from that to kind of decrease administrative burden, which is a big part of why healthcare has a waste in the United States. Yeah, it's really about removing the cost between and within systems. And that's the administrative burden that we're, that we're trying to um, address. And I think the other thing that uh, we're trying to address is eliminating the low value care from the system Mm-hmm. and replacing it with a high-value care mm-hmm. mentality. So, for example, today uh, we had an eye surgery come to us, and we just had a little brainstorm about dropping the pre-op for cataract surgery. Yeah. That's unnecessary. She said that would actually help with their no-show rate, mm-hmm. and maybe what we could do is substitute something of high value, which might be diabetic eye exams. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, that's the type of partnership that's true clinical partnership that, um, you know, a medical director of population health. And I would, I would recommend that 
surgery centers and others try to seek out the population health lead because that's usually going to be a clinical doctor like Dr. Elzon who's really forward thinking about mm-hmm. these clinical programs and and that's if I were going to give advice I don't know Lama mm-hmm. if you're mm-hmm. if you would agree but that's who I would think that um, folks should try to be seeking out in the health plans of today and tomorrow and that actually leads me to perhaps our last question which is uh, most of our listeners nationally as well as in the state tend to be the small centers mm-hmm. yeah, I mean we have national you know national organizations too but they're the smaller centers that you know they don't have those huge departments that are handling the, the relationships with the payers as well as they don't they have the same problem with it you know from a compliance standpoint and, and uh, a regulatory standpoint so what is your message to them how do they get known to these organizations you know I mean I think we know that in the long term there's probably going to have to be a movement toward more collaborative relationships among them you know that, that these independents are going to have a harder time surviving but that doesn't mean that they are completely out of the picture how do they interface with the emblems of the world? Well, I think that they should, Lisa, who's um, uh, working with the organization. Lisa Altieri is our, uh, Yes, yeah. she gave some great advice today, and, and I'll just reiterate it. It's preparing for the future, telling your story, yeah. writing your press release now, and then build to that press release. Yeah. Say you write your press release now for one year out, build up to that, and then seek out those uh, payers and mm-hmm. uh, other partners that you see maybe uh, on the web in the news that look like they're forward thinking around yeah, these yeah. programs. Seek them out and and really come to the table with your story. Yeah. And Lama, I think you said it too. Come to the table with your data, what whatever you can collect. Yeah, yeah whatever you, doesn't have to be you know the best you know IT and. The, you know, you, you know your data, and yeah. I know the most independent uh, surgery center know their data. Come to the clinical team, as I said, through your co- contacts, through the people who do the contracting. Ask for your medical leadership to uh, lead, uh, meet the medical leadership in the health plan. Uh, come with the data. Just put it on a piece of paper. Good data. Tell your member's story. Um, and then, you know, seek for help like what exactly the the short-term plan what do you need to be able to survive and continue serve your patients and and show this quality and then they will listen and then they will start supporting um and then they will bring the the financial people in kind of new innovative way that other people are doing that we can implement on a smaller scale it doesn't have to be a bigger scale and emblem is also not one of the bigger national uh you know uh uh, gurus of insurance we are also a local healthcare insurance in the tri-state area focused in new york Uh, you might have other Mm -hmm. partners that are local or inter or national Mm -hmm. but you know you have to seek that culture and that kind of uh, mirror culture and in, in the partners that, you know, that you're going to work together. And it's going to be a road. Uh, it's, we said it today. It's a road. It's a road. It's going to be a road. We have a yeah. roadmap for it. Yeah. It's not going to be tomorrow. It's not going to be in six months, but small steps and small gains. Well, and, and that brings me to a, an important point for our listeners is that we talk a lot about the regulatory need for quality improvement. We talk a lot about um, the importance of making sure that we're, we're you know, we have uh, good information for our quality improvement meetings that when the surveyors come out, everything's going to be perfect. But that's that's the regulatory side of it. 
And, and then there's a legal side to it also. But what is often forgotten, especially, and, and I'm sorry, I'm looking at you because you're a doctor, but you obviously are a forward-thinking doctor. Many doctors out there hate this quality improvement process. They don't, it's not that they don't want high quality care. They don't like the process they have to go through in order to get to that end. You know, many start with the thing, I always provide high quality care. Well, those of us in the regulatory, I'm, I'm on the mm-hmm. regulatory side, um, we want to see the data. We want to prove it. And yet here's another example of why that information is inf- important. And, and that's the sea change that's occurring in our industry right now is never before has there been this real push from the insurance companies to get a hold of that data that we have been accumulating over all these times. And one of the things that we forget here is how important our internal and our external benchmarking data is mm-hmm. to this mm-hmm. and keeping that up to date using technology as much as you can. And I love what you're just saying about it doesn't have to be a lot of data. You know, that's interesting, Lama, because I, I, you know, sometimes we think we have to develop these extraordinarily complex systems. And yet, sometimes you just want a simple answer to a relatively simple question to, to, to see what we're trying to accomplish. And one thing you said about physician, I mean, also our, uh, you know, healthcare uh, frontline you know, are burned out, and we have yeah, to take yeah, that into consideration. They were burned out before the pandemic, and now even more, even more so, right? Yeah. Because all of these regulatory, which I'm not saying they're wrong, but they they they, they fell on their shoulders. Yeah. They have to provide patient care, and then I I, I said in the um, I said in the panel that our chief medical officer all, always say, "Let physician be physician," yeah. and that's the, our role in the, from the healthcare, but also the administrator role in, the, for example, the ambulatory care surgery to kind of work with the physician. The physician's gonna do the best care. As I said, I do a high quality surgery for my patients, right? Yeah. So, but help support them to kind of make the workflow that is regulatory and for safety precaution, make it easier in in the EMR, for example. Yeah. Uh, make it in the workflow so that they don't actively have to think about every single step except the patient surgery, right? Yeah. Yeah. So so that is, is the difference. And that's what sometimes in certain healthcare organization, the burden of patient care Plus the others, all of the check marks of the quality has fallen on the uh, 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 physician or nurses and they burned out. When you take that administrative component and make it just flow within their workflow, Mm -hmm. it makes it that you will find partners that are willing to help and willing to improve. And the whole culture of safety and quality will improve in your organization. And it helps you to get to the point where you're not looking at the data, you're looking at the conclusions that come out of that data the insights the insights exactly that's right and we need the data to reflect what's going on right? right and this yeah, is why we yeah. don't want to like sophisticated data that yeah. that if in a way or another might kind of hide what's going on behind right yeah. we, we need to reflect really the patient experience and we know there's a barrier right yeah. and we know what are the success and what are the failure and some of the failure might be barrier from the insurance company right. also we have to self-evaluate ourselves and then come to the table with an open mind that we all need to change we all have yeah. our failure and we need to change and move it to the next step. Yeah, my, my listeners have heard this story, unfortunately, many times over time. And, and you, you get to this point. I, when I first started in the 90s, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a data geek, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I taught statistics in college. So I want all this data. So we had like 150 data elements. And, you know, like our second survey, the surveyor came out and said, this is all well and good, but this is trash. No, it isn't. <laughs> And, and what she says is, it's not relevant data to what we're looking at. Pick five of those things and focus on those five. 
And that's exactly what she yeah. said. And that's a message that I, I'm actually starting to feel that maybe I've kind of forgotten, you know, since my first experiences with it, because we're, you know, the regulators requires to have certain elements. Now, they're not really telling us what they need to be, but sometimes we just want to cover all our bases, make sure it's all there. And I think your insight there is extremely important. And I think, and it's good to hear, you know, insurance companies out there. It's, it's even hard to call you insurance companies anymore, isn't it? Because we're really in a completely different world where there really are these true partnerships between the, the, the providers and the, and the payers out there. So, And Emblem Health is really different. Yeah. Um, like Lama said, we are not-for-profit. Yeah. We are family of companies includes um, Advantage Care Physicians of New York, mm -hmm. which is primary and specialty care, 40 centers in uh all of the boroughs on Long Island. We have Bronx Docs, which is also part of our uh, family of companies. We have Connecticut in Connecticut. Oh, wow. yeah. We um, have Neighborhood Care, and we have WellSpark Health, which mm -hmm. um, is our uh, very important wellness national uh, company. And so we are different, and I think because we have so many of the pieces of the healthcare system perspective within our vertical that we have become a leader, a thought leader um, in, in this regard. Um, our CEO, Karen Ignani, is a vis true visionary. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we serve uh, the city of New York uh, workers. We work for them. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we take this very seriously and um, as a not-for-profit, we are able to, instead of focusing on shareholder value, mm -hmm. we're focused on the member value and our customer mm -hmm. value. So we are different, but um, we do see the trend uh, mm -hmm. and the tide turning yeah. in, our, in our industry, as Lama says. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been great. Thank you. In the next interview, John speaks with Todd Logan, the Chief Growth Officer of Surgical Information Systems. And Todd's been with us quite a number of times mm -hmm. during the uh, podcast, and of course, SIS is one of our sponsors of the program. And as always, it's a, it's always a delight talking to Todd. And in this particular case, we were talking about the future of technology in the surgery center settings, and specifically why it's probably time for electronic medical records to, to come into the surgery center setting. So let's listen. So I'm here at the New York State Association meeting in Terrytown. It is September of 2022. Todd, can you believe it? I cannot. Oh, my goodness. So I'm here with my dear friend, Todd Logan, who has been on this podcast. I think if we were to actually list the number of times certain individuals have been on the podcast, you know, probably you would be toward the, toward the top end of that. So welcome you're, back. You're going to be charging me rent here. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Sure. So, yes. and, and the funny thing is, as we were talking beforehand, is what can we talk about that we haven't really already addressed? So, uh, so I just threw an idea out there. And actually, you just did a presentation with some other uh, mm -hmm. vendors in the EHR space about, you know, what is, uh, I, I think the title was, The Future is Digital, what you, Why You Need EHR. So we've talked so much about that during the podcast mm -hmm. that I thought maybe it's just an interesting thing that you've got a lot of experience with implementing them and you know I think we all agree you got to move to an EHR mm -hmm. so given that maybe we have to think about let's let's make sure we're totally prepared for the challenges because we know what they are 
but we don't always talk about them. So why don't you just talk a little bit about some of the implementation challenges that you've run into in the in the last year, especially recently, you know, post-pandemic and, you know, with supply chain and all the other challenges, you know, limited number of staff, et cetera. So that just like it really current to what's going on, you know, within the last uh, even yeah. six months. A- absolutely. And, and thanks for the opportunity, John. Always great to see you and Same here. great opportunity to be able to have this discussion and and, and actually, I'm going to start out, I'm going to go back a little bit further, because yeah. I think this might be relevant to the discussion, because sure. I think I just I shared in the presentation today that I have now been working in trying to persuade and trying to enable ASCs to adopt EMRs for over 20 years. Yeah, yeah. And as we go through this, I have not been doing this consecutive years because about 10 years ago I had the opportunity to go work for a management company Mm -hmm. and we managed about a dozen ASCs and surgical hospitals and I was thrust into a role of a necessity for the organization to be the administrator of a multi-specialty surgery center yeah and why I bring this up is I stepped into a situation where it was an EHR implementation gone wrong yeah so I was I really love the saying that success is a poor teacher yeah i had a really good teacher in that this was failing miserably so i got to be able to experience firsthand what to do right and what to do wrong and not so good for the client for the the place you were working for but great for the ones that that for my own personal experience right 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 yeah so i think in in retrospect when i look back on it and and what went wrong what wasn't successful or what could have what were the lessons learned Mm -hmm. was really the fact that there wasn't executive support yeah. It all starts with executive support. And we all know that working in surgery centers, that we can show up and do a fantastic job supporting the the, the surgeons and mm-hmm. all the providers day in, day out, and do a great job in that regard. But if there isn't executive support from the surgeons themselves, yeah. it can sabotage any project. Right. They got bored with it really early on. Uh, they saw yeah. some things that it required them to do work on, and they said, you know, this just seems like more than what I wanted to sign up for, can we just push it off? Yeah. Can we just push it off? And then, then that is, um, that's something that's really hard to recover from because it's, there's never a good time for it yeah. if you don't have that executive leadership. So, well, and, and I think yeah. to that end too, when you, when, when physicians have to be in that mix, which they have to be for the training, um, they do not want to sit for, through a three hour training program. <laughs> they want you to give it to you in 30 I mean, I guess I'm not really kidding when I say 30 seconds. I want log me in, show me how to get to where I need to be, and then I'm done. You you've got to you yeah. you got to find a way to get them hooked. We we don't have the luxury of saying, come to this training class for yeah. eight hours at the hospital, or you lose your privileges. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, <laughs> they demand their own privileges yeah, right. at their center. So no, we don't have that. So it's incumbent upon the vendors to obviously make make the, the solutions incredibly intuitive right. so that they can adopt it. And, and and for the most part, I think that's one of the elements of feedback that we get from our mm-hmm. users, whether it's surgeons or this anesthesia providers um, that are coming in. Obviously, anesthesia is a big one. They're yeah. contract workers. They've never seen this thing before. Right. And they can really, um, they can and, really get the hang of it in just a few minutes. And, of course, they, in many cases, work in multiple environments. Yeah. That have no commonality, you know, yeah. work in a hospital with, uh, you know, one of the big systems out mm-hmm. there, work in a surgery center with a small one and yeah. probably work in an in a office based practice with mm-hmm. none at all. So, mm-hmm. yeah. no, you're absolutely right. So, 
So that's one element of just making certain that the system is intuitive enough to, to be able to inform them and be able to um, uh, really adopt the system in an easy way without formal training. Because it, formal training will not happen for the most part right. by a lot of the uh, surgeon the anesthesia providers. So as you've looked in the last year, what, do you have an um, implementation nightmare? Uh, so, Other than your own personal experience. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, right. So we started... Please don't name me any names. No, I, <laughs> I wanted to start just trying to establish a relevance of my yeah, personal yeah. experience. But, you know, you had also said, what has changed? Post-pandemic, what mm-hmm. has changed in this discussion? What are we seeing as far as some of the, you know, some of the elements that surgery centers are struggling from? And a lot of it right now is we have to adapt around staffing shortages. Yeah, well said. Right, yeah. so... We have people who have decided that in the past year or two, for all the right reasons, they want to move forward with the new the new system. They want to move forward with electronic medical records. But now they've had transition in some of their staff. Yeah. And maybe some of those champions who were there before are no longer there. Mm-hmm. And they just really don't have the bandwidth to do this. So we've come up with some creative um, ideas for them. We're, we're using a lot of third-party consultants yeah, yeah. to come on in and help understand their environment. Consultants who have helped build solutions before. And they can step in and they really add a lot of value mm-hmm. because they know some of these inherently yeah. what some of the pitfalls are and they know what questions to ask and they can quickly see some of the uh, workflows at the facility and translate that then into how to best optimize the solution when they're doing this rollout. Yeah, you bring up an important point too is uh, that that initial training that you provide, uh, it, it's like you, you go in and you feel, well, I'm going to train you. It's almost like our boot camp. Mm-hmm. You know, we go in and we train people in four days on everything, but we know it doesn't stop there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they, they have to, that's why we give access to people to be able to read it, watch it over and over again. That's where you have had to adapt to be able to provide training in, in multiple ways, not only on site or virtually, but also through recordings of, of that. So you've mm-hmm. had to adapt to that as well as to adapt to different learning styles. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we call it just in time training. Yeah. Because you can sit through formal training, formal classes. And it's all great when you're watching it on a screen and somebody yeah. else. But unless it's your data, unless it's your system, unless you're actually doing patient care that day right. and you have to chart it, it's really hard to retain that. So we take that into consideration. Um, and we we have built-in tutorials within the mm-hmm. solution and say, hey, remind me how I started yeah. an IV in a patient. And then it has a little uh, pop-up, pop-up that'll box. kind of walk yeah. through and just say, here are the steps to you know, start an IV in a patient. And yeah. here's how you document that element of it. So we have that. And, and, and obviously, I mean, it's, it's been challenging for us, too. I think the pandemic, what it did, we already had momentum going into the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But the things that changed are that people no longer had access to their, to their solutions if they were yeah. housed at the surgery center. Um, and then they were opening for a few days, closing for a few days, closing for a week or two, yeah, et cetera. Yeah, so then they realized, the that, hey, we need a better way to access our system. Yeah. We need a cloud-based solution, uh, which we're happy to to uh, really educate them on mm-hmm. and, and move them in that direction of our new solution. But you know, part of that has been challenging for us, too, just because you know we're really proud of the fact that we're the fastest growing ASC solution of all time, right? Mm-hmm. Just surpassing our 500th unit in just a yeah. few short years. So it's really exciting, this growth, but it does put some, some training and education constraints on yeah. our organization because we are moving so fast. Yeah, and that actually brings up a very important point is that as the adoption rate escalates, and that's what we're seeing is that that growth curve is no longer linear. It's becoming, mm-hmm. it's starting to, to, to head toward the exponential. Um, you're going to have a harder time getting in the loop 
Um, yeah, we've you and I have been saying this for a while, sooner rather than later mm-hmm. on this. And, and there's some organizations that I think somebody said during that speech that that session that you had this morning that there are some people out there that are just not going to act, to implement this until the law says they have to and mm-hmm. we have to respect that of course mm-hmm. but but yeah. it's going to be harder for them to make that argument as uh, right. as insurance companies as the uh, you know the end end user as a government requires much more information that you just can't get mm-hmm. off of a paper system yeah absolutely and and a couple of things since the last time that we talked this is this is this is new content now we can go yeah, to good, new good, content good. of some of the elements that we've seen is I had never seen this before, John, and that I was meeting with the CIO of a, a large healthcare aggregator on more than 100 centers. Mm-hmm. And gentleman had explained to me, he said, I've never heard this before, right? Surgeons in the past have been running away from EMRs. They yeah. don't like the one they use in the hospital. They might not like the one they use in their physician office. And this is the, the last place where they don't have to use one. Right, right. But yeah. we're seeing a change. He said, in the past month, he actually had two separate surgeons in completely different geographic markets come to him and say, I don't want to bring my case to your center because you don't have an EMR. Any, any EMR. Yeah. I, I'm just not going to chart on paper and use dictation. Right. I'm just used to having templates and being having this all automated and logging onto my phone to sign off on my order sets and right. sign off on op reports and be able to do this. It's, just, it's really inconvenient for me. So it's taking yeah. a step back. And I think that we're seeing this as a change as – New surgeons are going through their schooling, uh, just clinicians in general. They've just never had interactive paper before. Yeah. And then they start out maybe in the hospital, in another care setting, everything is electronic. They step into a, they step into a surgery center. Yeah. It's like stepping into a time machine. Yeah. How, how do I, where's yeah. the on button on this piece of paper? I, I don't understand right, how right, they right. log in. So I, well, I think and, and you have to be that. guided through it with somebody. I mean, literally, the nurse is going to be standing next to you, showing you where to where to sign and all that. Whereas with an EMR, the mm-hmm. system is helping you guide guide you right through it. And and in many cases, won't let you go anywhere else yeah. until you signed off on yeah. something, which a piece of paper is not going to do. Yeah. And and you know, I think we always end with this type of a conversation, but the importance of having a solution that is geared toward the ASC market. Now, we often talk about some of those lesser systems out there that might have been designed for offices. I'm going to go the other way this time, which I don't know what we've talked about here, in that we've been working with some hospitals mm-hmm. recently that own surgery centers or have purchased surgery centers or are you know, running surgery centers suddenly. And they're saying, I'm not going to go out and buy a system designed for a surgery center because I've got this wonderful system from the hospital and we'll just put it over in the surgery center. And what a nightmare that has been for those clients that are doing that because of the inability for those systems to either flex for, you know, the much lesser environment, you know, uh, you know, like uh, just, and some of the questions that have to be asked because they, the system does it like, you know, you come in for cataract surgery and one of the questions is in the last 30 days, have you ever felt like you wanted to kill yourself, <laughs> you know, or suicide? It's like, I don't think I'm going to ask yeah. my yeah. my patient that question, yeah. you know. But but those are things that are built into a hospital system that have a different set of regulations and a, and a different and, and of course you're you're taking so much time mm-hmm. to document that at the expense of the patient moving mm-hmm. on. Whereas a system that's been designed for ASCs from the ground up is going to get you there a lot faster. So yeah, we I couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah. What our fear is. And what we make sure of, right? Because an ASC 
is not an AFC is not an AFC. If you've seen one, you've seen one. They're yeah. all different, right? They're all very different. And I can't walk into either a single specialty eye center, GI center, or a facility that's that has a high it, population of very quick cases and tell yeah. them it's going to take 15 minutes to chart an eight-minute case. I yeah. can't do that. No, 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 you and, can't. And that's, yeah, that's what we try to service our market and make sure that we stay flexible to that, to that yeah. end. Yeah. So finally, we have hit both sides of that market. You know, stay away from the small systems that are designed for practices and the big systems that are designed for maybe, hospitals. Maybe, I, John, I think you just came up with their new take on. We're the Goldilocks solution. There you go. I love it. Goldilocks. I love it. Thanks so much, Todd. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. And last but certainly not least, I, I had an opportunity to talk to our, our dear friends Jeff Flynn and John Van Valkenburg, the uh, vice president and president of the New York State Association of Ambulatory Surgery Centers. We talked about, about the conference itself, about the future of our conferences, and, of course, what's going on with the state association. So let's listen. So this is John Gailey. I'm here at the uh, 2022 fall New York State Association Conference in Terrytown, New York. I'm here with John Van Valkenburg and, and Jeff Flynn and, uh, you know, from the president and uh, vice president of the association. We do this every year, mm-hmm. sometimes twice a year, uh, to yep. talk about uh, the event, what's going on. And uh, I'd just like to start with uh, Jeff. Talk a little bit about the conference and uh, the planning that went into it and all the – this has been a fantastic conference. Yeah. Uh, turnout's incredible. This has been our most successful conference from turnout and also from vendor uh, sponsorship. Yeah. Really engaging. I think the program itself, a lot of people got a lot of information out of it. Very excited with it. Um, We're getting positive feedback from it. Mm -hmm. And I think as we move forward and we think about things for the future, we're obviously have an annual conference starting next year, but we're going to focus on doing regional things to really build the regions to grow the organization. Yeah. And I think uh, speaking as a vendor, and I know we have a lot of vendor listeners out there, probably especially with the special episode. This has been one of the best throughputs we have. That's a term that we use in vendor school, yeah. um, <laughs> where uh, you know we had uh, people were forced to go past our booths. We had great engagement with the uh, with the attendees, and and I heard a lot of great comments from the attendees about their interaction with the vendors. So that's that's important. That's and that's what kind of sets us aside, I think, with many state associations. I and I, you know, I between and. Guy or myself, we probably attend half of the conferences, half the state association conferences. So that's a big thing to say that 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 this is the place to be if you want to have vendor engagement. No, we appreciate that, and it's also the opportunity. This is an educational process. The vendors are educating us on what's yeah. new and out there, especially as we're sitting sixty hours a week in our own silos. This really gives people. You, the you're only working sixty outside. hours a week. Yeah, I'm what? banker hours. Yeah, banker. <laughs> But this really is, that's a way for them to learn. But even the way we set it up this time, and it actually was a hotel's design, but literally you couldn't register and get your registration without going through the entire vendor That that was genius. Which I thought was great. That was genius, absolutely. Uh, What's on the the horizon for the future with uh, our our conferences? We're we're making a a major change in the way we're doing things. Yeah, we're going to be doing a conference next year, only one annual conference, Mm -hmm. and that's going to be next year in Albany at the Desmond, Mm -hmm. and it's going to be next October uh, 4th through through 6th. But also we're going to concentrate um, with um, going to regional conferences Mm -hmm. and doing some regional meetings in each area so that more localized uh, information can come through. Certainly a big part you'll be involved in Mm -hmm. with doing some virtual things to, to really get people more involved Whereas they don't have to travel as far, be out right. of the office three days. We want to start getting people together that I can only de- dedicate, you know, half yeah. a day or a day, 
but we can do it in your area. So it's not a half a day or a day traveling to. Right. That's one of the things that we've seen in all of the state conferences we've been going to lately is that they can't sacrifice both the administrator and the nurse manager. Mm -hmm. So we got to find a way to work around. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, one day for for clinical one day for administrative you know whatever we we're we're thinking about all those things there's no Absolutely, firm plans on any of it mm -hmm. but we're thinking about that and for those of you that attended the conference please fill out your evaluations we take those things extremely seriously we use them in determining uh, you know venues as well as the content uh, and the structure of, mm -hmm. of the meeting so I, I i just want to make sure we put that word out there yeah. also and in, in perfect example of that uh for this particular conference we changed the schedule a little bit uh because of feedback that we got from the attendees at previous conferences and uh we're speaking right now it's uh just afternoon on yeah. friday and we just wrapped up the conference it, it allows our attendees uh some time to travel uh, back home rather than wrapping it up at the end of the day and right. people getting uh, getting back home late at night. So again, that was that change was due to feedback we got from right. our attendees and and uh, we, we listened and we changed it, changed the schedule and I think it worked out really well. And uh, word about Desmond, uh, Jeff and I and and uh, Lisa went to visit them yes. a couple of weeks ago. To uh, what an incredible uh, venue that is going to be! Yeah. I mean, I've always enjoyed the Desmond, but they've really upgraded. They really have done supply. a major renovation, so it's really going to. And the way they've planned it out for us, as you know, right. this really will be will be able to grow even further at that venue. Right, and an important thing about Albany uh, is it is. Yes, it's further for the people from New York City to go to than, you know, than Terrytown. But it is one of the more central locations in the state, uh, especially if it's access from the thruway, um, mm -hmm. you know, to be able to get there. So really anybody can get there from any part of the state. So I think and we're hoping also state legislators and we can right. get government people, but also the Department of Health, more people from there. We're very happy to have Dr. Morley here for this meeting to speak to us. But to get more participation from the Department of Health, they'll be able to do that from an Albany location. Right. And we had a, quite a number of speakers uh, that that we interviewed through this. What do you think was, just talk a little bit about the general theme of the conference here and what you were trying to accomplish. I think it was the overall theme was the future because mm -hmm. so many of us are in independent centers unlike maybe a number of other states, about 80% of us are independent centers, right. is this gives an opportunity to look at what's out there for the future. When we talked about, you know, just technology, as many of our centers are still on paper and that's yeah. not the purpose, um, you know, looking at the option of national companies, if that's an option coming that people want to explore, but also the roadmap of an insurance company coming here and showing us how to work with them yeah. and giving us the thing is don't go to your contractor, go to the clinical interface in yeah. the company was certainly a big secret to come out to seek out that person. But if we can do that with each of the major payers throughout the state, because obviously some are bigger in different areas of the state, I think we are giving our centers the roadmap to better success and to tell their great story of their great outcomes. I appreciate that. John, I don't remember how many years you've been the president here. It seems since like 2018. Four, there so we go. Four years. Yeah. It seems a lot longer than that. Uh, well, it's been a long four years. Well, the last two and a half have been really long for, for obvious yeah, reasons. Yeah, I think pandemic years count yes, differently. They do. But they're like dog years. <laughs> That's right. So there's been a lot of changes in the last year. You know, we're, uh, as an organization, we're getting better organized. We have greatly enhanced our resources. Talk about the changes that have occurred in the last. I, what we we last spoke in um, yeah, April, it, I believe. Yeah. So talk about those changes. Well, uh, first of all, we've grown in membership. We now uh, have over 100 facilities for the first time, as far as I know, and I'm, I'm assuming for the first time uh, in the history yeah. of the organization, no yeah. we have over uh, 100 uh, facility members and uh, six associate members of the association. It's 
well over 50%, I guess probably about 60% of all the licensed facilities in the state. So yeah. we've grown as an organization. Uh, obviously, our, our events have grown. This was the mm-hmm. most highly attended uh, conference that, again, to my knowledge, mm-hmm. our organization has had. And I, I beg to guess that that the organization has ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, in the pack, that was a, that's right. another big thing. And, and our organization um, has had a pack in the past. Uh, but it was something that 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 kind of went dormant. Uh, there wasn't a lot of activity going on with it. It wasn't being utilized. We got that going again. You know, we worked with Capital Health Consulting. You know, they brought some 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 people in that that knew how. I mean, I can tell you the it's difficult because it's complicated. Yeah. There's reporting requirements and, and it is a little bit scary. And I know I, I was worried. There's a lot of legal uh, issues re- yeah. regarding PACs and donations and everything like that. But um, we got the right people involved. We started a new one. We did it the right way. We're collecting donations now and we're putting those funds to use uh, to help build relationships with our uh, elected legislators. So that's that's really another big, very recent development in, in the organization. And, um, you know, we've also uh, just recently had board elections. We've mm-hmm. elected a new board in just a few minutes here. We'll be having our first, first board, board meeting, meeting of the new board. Um, we got a twi- quick transition from a studio into a board. Room. We'll, <laughs> we'll see how that works. Yep. But uh, but, you know, that, that's that's another thing. Yeah. So really, uh, really exciting. Uh, we have a lot going on. We're, we're going to talk about it at the board meeting, but there's uh, new initiatives we're trying to put in place. And Jeff spoke mm-hmm. to some of the efforts we're making regionally. You know, again, it's this, in my opinion, was was uh, not only our most well attended conference. I think it was our best conference ever. The feedback's been wonderful, mm-hmm. both from the sponsors and from the attendees. And, you know, I think we really have some momentum. You know, we've had conversations now with payers. We're having conversations mm-hmm. with the Department of Health that weren't happening before. And, and again, we just want to continue to build on that momentum. I, I'll tell you, uh, John Morley from the Department of Health spoke. It is rare that you literally almost get a standing ovation for somebody from the Department of Health. Yeah. He did an incredible job. Of course, yeah. he's a doctor who who really has a good sense of humor and, and no, a good thing. his presentation was fantastic. Yeah. It's too bad we couldn't interview him. I know the Department of Health has different rules about those things, right. but he would have been fantastic yeah. on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about the website, you know, changes that we made to that and yeah, absolutely. Uh, since since last year, uh, you know, we we rolled out a new website. It's meant to be more member engaging. Uh, members are able to log in. There's some features in there with regards to communication and networking amongst mm-hmm. our members. Um, and there's other tools um, yeah. through it that really we're just kind of you know scratching the surface. I think with what we're going to do and what we're going to be able to do with the website. Um, the website itself is nysaasc.org. Um, so, uh, and, and old dogs like me, I could actually figure out how to do it. So, but. yep, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I got the young guys here, but you yeah, know, the old guy, you know, no, no, that's not so easy. So, so if I can do it. You can do it. So listeners uh, are are welcome to obviously go and check that out. Certainly, if you're a member, you're you're going to want to check that out regularly. Yeah. And we'll provide a, uh, provide a link in our uh, show notes to both the website as well as the registration page for that. Wonderful. So. Just one other important initiative um, to mention is that we actually have gotten the New York State Assembly um, person to introduce a bill to mm. put a member a great- of independent ASC member on the FIPIC Council, and we now have a Senate sponsor, too. Wonderful. So the, moving forward, that's mm-hmm. key for our um, development further also. Yeah, and for the listeners, the Public Health Council is never – ever in its entire existence ever had representation from the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. Um, and this is the, this is time. You know, first it, step. It, it's, exactly. it's amazing uh, that, that, that it's gone this long. Overdue. Absolutely. Well overdue. Mm-hmm. 
and again, I wanted to circle back to the regional because it will be another year before we all get together to yes. talk about this, and yet things are going to keep going. So uh, it's important to, again, emphasize that these regional things will be kicking off very quickly. There's a bunch of us that are super excited about it and are just like, we're going we're gonna to push for it as quickly as we can. So keep an eye out for that. I, I don't, we don't really have any news about that yet, but watch the website. We'll mention the regional things in the podcast in our, our, our Section 3 where we announce upcoming events. So keep, mm-hmm. it, keep an ear out for that. As always, I appreciate your time. We got one more thing to do before we close this conference out and uh, have this board meeting. But uh, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to our listeners. Thank you. Thank you, John. And thank, thank you, you for John. your support of the organization, you know, helping with these events and, and also for the for the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank sure. you. Thank you. This episode of the ASC podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, Trivalence and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Surgical Information Systems provides cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable insights. Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies is the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute, legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you are interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.